Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is Professor Helena Barnard, who is a director that heads up the doctoral program which focuses on developing new scholars at the University of Pretoria's Gordon Institute of Business Science. Welcome to the show, Professor Barnard. Thank you very much. To begin with, research builds knowledge. It aids business success. It helps decision-making purely based on evidence so that people aren't utilizing emotions and just opinions. Can you please tell us about some of the responsibilities that come with your portfolio? Thank you. I'll start with a story, which is really where it started. When I did my PhD, which was in the US, I, uh, if you wanted to understand business and management in Africa, you could go to London or Boston. And it really bothered me that you couldn't go somewhere on Af in Africa for a topic that is on Africa. And I know South Africans tend to be a little bit full of themselves about their own importance relative to the rest of the continent. But it just struck me if the topic is business and management, surely Johannesburg should be added to that list. London, Boston, Johannesburg. And because I was working at Gibbs, which although it's part of the University of Pretoria, the business school is in Johannesburg, I figured Gibbs really should be a producer of cutting-edge, leading knowledge on the continent about business and management in Africa. So when I got the opportunity to start running the doctoral program in 2012, that really was my vision. Um, so it's very strongly Africa-focused. Business and management are a social science. It's how societies are organized. It's how we manage. It's how we inspire. It's how we plan or control. Um, and this may well differ between different societies. So I figured out that what we need to do is we need to come up with a world-class doctoral program. And my sense, of, you've said it, research gives you the lever to understand how different things relate. And once you have those levers, you can pull those levers, you can get results. And it felt to me that so often as managers and business people on the continent, we didn't fully understand the levers. So from its inception, the doctoral program has been globally connected because knowledge is global, but with a very strong African focus. And yeah, we have a program by which we select students. Um, we have a preparatory year, which this year has been launched as an MPhil in evidence-based management, because that exactly is, is what we believe. Let's manage on the basis of evidence. And then we select from the MPhil or from other MPhils it gives, but really people that we think can go the distance. And we've had extraordinary success. I'll stop bragging, but um, the past three years of the 21 graduates, we had five were either winners or finalists in international dissertation competitions. So, so it really seems that, that there's something magic happening in the community. 
And you're so right about the, the point that having African excellence emanating out of the continent as opposed to almost Western dictates on what management and leadership is about in our continent. South Africa, Johannesburg being a, a key hub. What about other African countries in, in terms of students that come to, to study on our shores? So we've been very fortunate because Shortly after I took over, the Canadian IDRC, which is a grant company, gave us funding to support 14 doctoral um, students from across the rest of Africa. And we've really had an international footprint since then. Um, this year, we were fortunate because um, lockdown meant that everything went virtual. Uh, we have very strong partnerships with the SEEBS Ghana campus. And the SEEBS Ghana campus doesn't have a mandate to offer a PhD. And the model, like in so much of the world, is you do this full time. Africans don't have time for that. By the time you get to do your doctorate, you need to have a program that will accommodate the fact that you're a breadwinner, that you have a family, and, and, and that will push you to excellence. So we've had a lot of students that were coming to us via SEBS Ghana. And in fact, we are in the process of applying to offer the MPhil um, online because you, there, there are certain criteria set by the Council for Higher Education. But, but I would say a good third of our doctoral students are from elsewhere in Africa, Uganda, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Mozambique, obviously Zimbabwe. There's so many Zimbabweans on the on, on the program because, of course, the excellent education system. Um, but they not only Zimbabwean, they're also studying things that are happening in Zimbabwe. Um, Malawi. I can go on. I think last time I counted, we had 14 separate countries represented. And thinking about that dynamic and the, the breadth of different countries that students come from, and especially that you are a business school, which means that students are working. This isn't a first degree. It is a postgraduate um, qualification. What are some of the interesting studies that stand out for you that some of the students are working on? Yo, you know, I'm going to be accused of having favorites. Um, and that's my, my daughter's big bugbear. You can't have favorites. Um, let me talk about the Zimbabwean example because I think there's so many important lessons to learn from Zimbabwe. There are firms in the formal economy in Zimbabwe that are still surviving. And in fact, there are firms that are thriving. Now, you know, if we could figure out what makes firms from Zimbabwe survive the kind of adverse economic and political situations that they've had to face, that would be hugely beneficial, not just for Zimbabwe, but for many countries that are struggling with uncertainty and economic downturns. So I think the work that we've been doing in Zimbabwe have really been incredibly powerful. Um, the other thing I'm um, um, to, to avoid um, accusations of, of favoritism, I think I must talk about students who have already graduated so we at least know that, um, that they're not going to get an easy path through the examination. I had a doctoral student from Kenya who looked at returnee entrepreneurs. 
So they are very often seen as very important conduits for new technology into a country. And she, there's a little bit of work on, on the returnee liability. It typically is seen as because you've been living in the UK or US or wherever, you really are used to countries that just work and now you get back and your institutional context is not so well developed. Well, what she found out is that there's a huge interpersonal liability because while you are overseas, you are sending remittances. You're earning in pounds and euros and dollars. Now you come back, you're no longer earning in those hard currencies and you're wanting to start a business that long term is likely to benefit the economy. But right now the family wants to know you used to support our education and now nothing is happening. So she really untangled some of the complexities there in terms of, of, of how the returnees were, in fact, uh, there was a lot of suspicion between them and the locals, which obviously means that it's very hard to, to, to realize some of the benefits that they have. And the, the other project that, that is actually a project that I did was one of our uh, alumna who is now um, a faculty member, actually a professor at Gibbs, was about religion as an institution, institution guiding business in Africa. So, you know, we were gathering data, trying to understand more about business and management in Africa. And it, it was only 15 interviews later that we realized everybody talks about God and how God is guiding them, not just on a personal level, but also as a business person. And once we started exploring it, we realized that that in the African context, religion is really important and religion is part and parcel of how organizations manage. And um, we've presented the paper a few weeks ago and people are saying to us things like, oh, this is so trendy. This is now becoming fashionable. We saw there's a, there's a conference happening a few weeks from now um, on religion and entrepreneurship. And, and it really surprised me and, and, and it, it reinforced for me how important it is to just write down what we are grappling with, what we are seeing, because we had no idea that America is going to wake up to the fact that religion happens and that it influences business. So when people say this is so trendy, you know, it's, if you're African, you get used to people not thinking that you're very trendy. So we were very surprised, but very gratified that that theorizing our world actually makes a difference in terms of how we go about optimally managing on this continent. And again, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is about our continent, our world our culture and, and the way it works and, and potentially the lessons that we can give to other countries that are not based in the continent. It was really interesting just on that. Um, on religion, for example, Americans are so nervous to talk about religion. And I thought, you know, when we try and study digital multinationals, we don't have a Facebook or a Google. So we are at a bit of a disadvantage there. But when we look at religion and business, we are not constrained by whatever it is that that makes 
American scholars very cautious about taking it. So we have, it's not just our world, but it's also our competitive advantage in the global knowledge space where we can make a contribution to knowledge that the rest of the world can sit up and say, oh, wow, I never realized this. Thinking about knowledge contributions, publishing is paramount within your space. You are an area editor for a newly launched publication called the Journal of International Business Policy, which is the sister journal of the Journal of International Business Studies. And you're the deputy editor in charge of Africa for the journal called Management and Organizational Review. You, you sit on editorial review boards of the global strategy journal IEEE Transactions in Engineering Management, as well as Academy of Management Perspectives. I want to ask you if taking part in so many important associations and, let's say, editorial profiles and hats, comes with the territory of your career or if it's something that you found has grown with you as you've progressively traversed your career? Um, I think it's important to remember that when we do research, we are developing new knowledge. That means there's no memorandum for it. We, we can't say, oh, we cracked this. And what do we then do to make sure that we know what's quality? The cornerstone process in research is peer review. It's scholars who come together, who volunteer their time, who read through manuscripts, who discuss manuscripts, who say, this is ringing true, this is not quite ringing true. I'm not sure about your evidence here. Why do you tell the story from this perspective and not that perspective? So research has a very strong service component to it um, because we are collectively as a body of scholars responsible for what goes out in the world as knowledge. So, so it's really, it's as a scholar, if you take it seriously, then the process of peer review is always a part of what you do. Um, what has happened is that I have over the years been, there, there's such a shortage of African scholars. Um, my doctoral students laugh when, when I say I have been called the face of Africa because I know this is radio, but my face is not very dark. And, but in scholarship, there is such a scarcity of African voices that, that people have really given me both tasks and opportunities, and I think the two are very often the same, um, because they want to make sure there is an African voice. And, and, and then I just can't say no. You know, if somebody realizes we need an African to, to help us make sense of Africa, and we don't have many, I just end up saying yes. And with your African voice and wearing your, your cap as a, as a scholar, what role would you say that education's played in your life? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about, about it the other day. My grandmother's older sister had a PhD before she had the vote. She was a white woman, but um, women still were delayed in getting the vote. And her father, my great-grandfather, had two daughters. He had a son who passed away. 
And he told them a woman can do anything she wants. So I'm really privileged that my two, on my mom's side, my two great grandmothers had tertiary education. Uh, my grandmother had tertiary education on my mom's side. Her sister had a PhD. It is something that was just what we do. It's, it's very different on my father's side of the family. They came from poverty. But I think, especially because it was my mom's side of the family, there was never any doubt that, that I would have the right and, in fact, obligation to go and really use what, what has been granted to me by God. Um, my intellect, my ability to ask questions. So, so I think there's power in education and there's even greater power if it becomes taken for granted. It's never up for discussion whether or not this child will finish school, go to university, get postgraduate education because this child happens to be a girl. It, it was really a gift growing up. In, in, in that in that atmosphere. You've highlighted the benefits and you've seen the successes of having education for for yourself and, and for your family. In more general terms, how do you see education as an instrument to empower girls and women? It makes you understand how the world works. And what's always so interesting for me is some people are really curious to understand the natural world. How, how do plants do what they do and how do cells work? And then COVID comes along. And I'm like, oh, yes, that, those people are really, really important. We need people who understand cells. My interest is in the social world. But I think what's really important is education allows you to see beyond what's immediately evident and to look at the, the underlying triggers, mechanisms, levers, and, and it allows you to ask questions. Um, we can't, I always tell my doctoral students, you don't become, um, you don't know things at the end of your doctorate. You know, you, you're still confused. You're just confused at a more sophisticated level. But I think there's great power in being able to say, I'm confused. But I have confidence in, in my right to ask this question. I have confidence that, that questions are a good thing. So I think that's what's great about education. We definitely support your, your vision and, and view of education as a, a tool of empowerment, uh, particularly in the hands of women. Today, we're talking to Professor Helena Barnard, who is a professor at the University of Pretoria's Gordon Institute of Business Science. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Barnard, Womanity Women in Unity is all about celebrating women's achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, gender-based violence, and socioeconomic class division. And whenever I say these words, I, it just reminds me of how far that we've come and also how far we still have to go. Can you share some of the obstacles that you've encountered as a woman whilst building your career and how you overcame those challenges? Thank you so much. You know, I was, I, I think you could tell that I was really privileged 
And I think that very few women have been able to enter the workplace with both the substantive support of a solid education and the emotional support of a family fully behind them and, and, and just thinking that this is normal. The challenges that I experienced were not related to my gender. Because I'm white, they weren't related to my, to, to my uh, race either. And when I thought about what was one of the most substantial challenges for me, I joined Gibbs in 2006. And at that time, Gibbs was really teaching focused. It was, it was important for Gibbs to have um, a, a body of faculty who were excellent in the classroom, who spoke with industry experience. I, I did have that. And, and doing research was seen as a bit ivory tower. Now, I fully support that a business school, any university, should have excellent teaching. This is our primary reason for existing. But I thought that, that research was not given just recognition. And I realized that if I want to do research, I'm going to either not do it at Gibbs or I'm going to, to somehow make, help Gibbs understand that, that research matters. Gibbs is an extraordinary place. It's an incredibly collegial place. It's a place that really is about growing people. And I thought that that kind of orientation, a place that cares about growing people, I would rather be at a place like that that's skeptical about research than to be at a place that's not so focused on human development. So I put up my hand for every single thing that had the word research within 100 miles of it. Any committee on main campus, any ethics committee, every committee. I mean, I sat on a thousand committees, all to do with research. On the side, I did my own research. And it was really a lot of hard work. And what I realized is I didn't mind that hard work. It was because I really cared about what I was trying to do. So I think it will be different for people who have not been as privileged as I am, who have to overcome other things. But I think the fundamental thing is that if you truly believe that what you have to offer matters, it doesn't matter that you put in the long hours because it matters. It, it is, it, I didn't care the fact that I was, I was spending way more than 70 hours a week. I, I, I worked way too hard. But it felt to me we, we need to, 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 to get this on the table. And, and literally, I think it's four or five years ago now, um, there was so much research happening at Gibbs that we split the portfolio. There's a research portfolio and a, and a doctoral programs portfolio. My passion is the doctoral students. The, the new scholars, I love, I love growing scholars. But, but it had become the kind of place where I was hoping to work. And, and I think it's, it's because of that very clear sense of purpose. If you have a sense of purpose, you don't mind putting in the work. You have to put in the work, but I mean, that, that's sort of a given. Uh, if you want to succeed at anything, you're going to have to put in the work. 
Thinking about the work that you've invested and the sacrifices that you've made, yes, we spoke earlier about some of the work that your students are doing in the continent, but we haven't really spoken about some of your personal work within the research space. And I know that your research lie in how knowledge moves between more and less developed countries, particularly in the continent. And as you said, you are almost wearing this cap of the voice of Africa. Can you tell us about some of the more significant projects that you're working on personally? Okay. Um, one of the ones that's actually been published is there's an assumption in the literature that knowledge, you, you could sort of learn some basic things if you come from a developing country. I love saying third world and then people from rich company, countries say to me, no, don't say third world. Third world, developing country people will be offended. I'm like, no, they're not. Um, so, but, but the so-called third world, um, it was never assumed to be a place that generates cutting edge knowledge. So I did a project with uh, two economists who are based in Strasbourg and we looked at the quality of PhDs from South Africa and to look at subsequent career success. And what we were able to do was to differentiate between a part of your career success is the fact that you've learned some really useful skills. You, you know how to run your stats models or how to frame your problem. Another part of your career success is the fact that you come from Oxford or Harvard or, or whatever. So you've been blessed by, by this what we call selection effect. And we were able to show that the top universities in South Africa were as good as the top universities in the rest of the world, um, which makes sense because knowledge is actually not something that floats in the air. We know even something as scientific as COVID, specifics of place really make a difference. So the perception that the quality of PhD training is not as good as elsewhere is, is, is that it's a perception. It is not really the quality of the training. Now, obviously, you've got a, a range good to less good overseas, and you've got the same here. But what we, what we could show was that the good universities here are delivering world-class training, although the, 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 the status is, is not as high. So that was, was a project that I found really quite interesting. The other project, I've done a lot of conceptual papers the past while because as I was grappling with it, I was trying to map the terrain. So one of them was on the Africa we want and the Africa we see. I think it's the other way around, the Africa see and the Africa we want. Just trying to theorize what is it that Africans contribute to the global conversation um, of scholars. And then I've done another one about, um, there's a lot of interest in emerging market multinationals. Are they different from multinationals that come from Europe or the US? And what I argued is that actually it's, it's if you're an emerging market multinational, typically you come from a middle income country. Increasingly, we also see from lower income countries, but it tends to be that these emerging market multinationals come from the middle of the economic hierarchy, if you wish, the, 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 the pyramid from if you have high, medium and low. And this means that they can go either high 
or low to countries that are richer than them or poorer than them or both. And, um, and I did a conceptual paper that, that, that explained that we will see very, very different shapes of firms, not because South Africa has suddenly changed, but because you have to be a different kind of firm to do well in Zambia and Kenya compared to doing well in the US or Germany. And, and that, so, so I've, I've done a lot of conceptual work and that for me has been setting the groundwork for some other work that I've now started, but I won't talk about it because it's way too early. I, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm thinking there. Given what you know today, be it in the, the academic world, be it in, in the business world, what do you think needs to be done to ensure that women have a better future, whether they are, are working, as I said, in academic space or, or professional sector and business? So, the if I think back to what was what were the triggers for my success, the enablers for my success. I think one of the big, big differentiators was that my father was my biggest fan. Um, from my great-grandfather, I've spoken about him. When we have the men in our lives fully trust us, fully wish for us only the best, only the greatest advantage. And we've actually seen this study has not been done in Africa, um, but we've seen in the U.S. that that when CEOs have daughters, male CEOs have daughters, they tend to be far more pro um, women's equality. So it feels to me important that if we want to make a shift, we have to take the men folk with us. We, we have to find a way of 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 connecting with men and having men as our champions. Um, I. The people that I've met who are, the women that I've met who are remarkable, time and again what comes out is that my father has been my rock and my anchor. Also mothers, but but I think that if you are working in a world where the voice of women is sometimes not heard, and you know sometimes my dad doesn't hear me the first time, but the second time he can come around, it gives you almost automatically the confidence to say, let me try this again. Let me try and get my message through. So I really think it's a it's a call to, to reach out beyond women to try and see how do we build allies with, with men to ensure this transformation. And I also think in that transformation, it's about this notion of being able to, to share powers. It's not a case of power is going to be taken away from one gender and bestowed upon another. You mentioned your, your dad as being one of the key attributes as a, as a success factor to enable you to uh, get, get to where you are now. Can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Um, you know, growing up, my father believed that I was the most amazing child on every single dimension. And I would explain to him and say to him, you have to understand I am not the most beautiful child on the planet. And my father would just simply not believe me. Um, my father would, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not um, 
numerically very gifted. I'm verbally far more gifted than numerically. My father just wouldn't believe me. He says, oh, no, don't, don't cut yourself short. So if I think back to my childhood, my mother is a, is a more even-keeled individual. She was very proud of us, very supportive of us. But my father had this abundant belief in his daughters. I have a sister as well, in which I grew up swimming in love and, and acceptance. And, and, and that truly is, is, is what I remember in terms of growing up, is, is the sense of an absolutely adoring dad who would be okay with whatever I chose. It's so important to have that support factor. And I think that perhaps it's it's one of the aspects which is it's taken for granted almost by the individual, but um, for people who don't have it, it really shows that there is a is a deficit. And as we're a gender program, could you share with us who've been some of the strong women in your life? Well, it's actually my dad's mother. Um, so on my mom's side, they came from privilege. Um, it's not the case on my father's side. So my grandmother was um, at 16. She had to leave school. She never finished school. Uh, there wasn't money. It was during the Depression. She needed to go work. And then she married after a few years. And I think she was 41 or 42 when she was widowed and she had four children at school, one in grade one, one in grade 12 and two in the middle. And so here's a woman who had, um, in these days it would be grade 10, standard eight of education, who had four children to raise. And she, she in those days, the pensions of, the, of my, my, my granddad was a civil servant, the pension wasn't very generous. So she, she was really strapped for cash. Um, they moved from the small rural town where they were living to Pretoria because she wanted to join the civil service because that's where she thought you would at least have a stable job. And, and she was very good with working with money. She, she taught me, don't buy what you need, buy what you cannot do without. And she ended up as the director of adoptions for South Africa. So she really worked her way all the way up. And what, so, so I admire that about her. I admire the fact that she was able to work with very little money and make sure that her children were fed and clothed. I admire the fact that she was able to, to really advance in her career. But what I admire most of all is she never, ever thought of herself as anything other than a fortunate person with opportunities, with uh, a wonderful life. And that optimism, that way of, of framing, which objectively speaking is a pretty tough life, but of framing that as something that is a gift to be enjoyed, I think that for me is, is what I most admire. Sounds like she was a fantastic woman and, and person with great values to, to learn from. She, oh, there's one story. When they were moving from the rural town to Pretoria, she, in those days, there wasn't easy transportation 
So she, she took, she went up to Pretoria to try and find a um, place to live. It needed to be in a good school district so that the children would have good schools. Uh, she couldn't afford a car, so she had to be on a bus route so that she could get to work. And she couldn't find anything in her price range. So she came back, it's December. They need to start in January in, in, in Pretoria. And she ordered the removal van to take the furniture. And my uncle was livid with her. He said to her, you can't do that. We don't know where it's going to go. You're going to have to pay to, to store the furniture. And my grandmother said to him, I have told God, I have done my part. It is now God's job to sort this out. And I'm not going to worry about it. She ordered the removal van. She totally relaxed. And on Christmas Day, she called a friend of her mom's, um, who, who her mom had passed away, but this old auntie was still living, to wish her Merry Christmas. And the lady was really upset because she had fallen on the day before, on the 24th. Her children only found her on the 25th, and they said, you have to go to an old age home unless we can make a plan. And she was living on the bus route, going past the school into town. And my grandmother said, in a three-bedroom house, and my grandmother said to her, how would it feel if, if we came and live with you? And the old lady was, I couldn't possibly do it. And my grandmother, so they were living, my grandmother and my aunt lived in one room. The old lady had her own room. And then the three brothers had to share a room. So it wasn't in any way luxurious, but they had a house that gave them access to, to, to the right schools and everything. And apparently, obviously, this predates me, but my grandmother walked to my uncle and she said, I told you. God will come through. So she was in every way a remarkable woman. That's such a fantastic story. Lastly, as we close today's conversation, could you share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women that are listening to the show? I'm doing a job that I love. I think that the job adds value but sometimes I think you know it's a PhD by the time people come to me they can eat they can feed their families they it's it's a little bit obscure but for me and for who I am it feels that I'm making a contribution I get paid for the job um, now and again I'm frustrated because things don't go my way and sometimes I'm delighted because things go my way far more than I expected. So I think for me, it's not about trying to, in, in big capital letters and full lights, make a difference, make your mark. It is about finding the place in the world where you feel you have purpose and the work that you do matters. If you feel that the work that you do matters, that it has purpose, you will be prepared to put in the hours to do it. You will be prepared to overcome the setbacks. You will be prepared to, to keep on forging ahead if there's some stupid individual who doesn't understand what it is that you're trying to, to achieve. 
And I think this is how change happens. It doesn't happen because we are setting out to be um, in big, bold letters, change the status quo or stuff. It happens because we are finding that spot inside ourselves where things feel so worthwhile that we are prepared to push. Thanks for that great message. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Helena Barnard, who heads up the doctoral program at the University of Pretoria's Gordon Institute of Business Science. Thanks so much for joining us.